0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagro Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Russia, for the first time in the history of warfare, appears to have deployed hypersonic conventional weapons, striking a Ukrainian arms bunker as well as other targets as Vladimir Putin ramps up The scale uh, and brutality of his assault on Ukraine, increasingly targeting civilians, whether they are sheltering or trying to flee. Sanctions continue, but Western moves have stalled as talks between Kiev and Moscow and a negotiated settlement continue. The Fed is moving to curb inflation as bulk oil prices drop, but have yet to be reflected at the gas pump, demonstrating the rocket and feather effect. Prices go up like a rocket but drop like a feather. The administration is preparing to submit its defense budget request to Congress. That looks like it's going to include fewer F-35 fighters, less money for the Air Force's hypersonic uh, cruise missile program, as well as the retirement of some 10 U.S. Navy littoral combat ships. Textron acquired Pipistrel, an innovative Slovenian all electric light aircraft maker that has developed an interesting market for its product. And just as everyone convinced themselves that COVID was over, another wave is breaking with a new variant devastating Hong Kong and hitting Europe. This, as the pandemic has killed at least 971,000 Americans and more than 6.1 million worldwide. Joining us today, as they do every week, to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the Independent Equity Research Firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abolafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Uh, I should also point out to our audience that both Ron uh, and Sash are on the move, so are joining us uh, so, their connections may not be as robust as they normally are when uh, they are in their uh, enclaves of Chatham uh, as well as London. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, great to be here, Vago. Yeah, thanks so much, Vago. Great to be on, as always, Vago. Uh, indeed, a pleasure having all of you guys on. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, and check out our two. Uh, weekly podcast, "Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful uh, and deep look at all things space. Everybody, as I said, welcome. Uh, It's great to have you all back together again this week. Ron, uh, start us off. How did the group perform uh, on the street, right? I mean, a lot of factors going on, some defense budget news, uh, as I mentioned, as well as uh, fuel prices are, are dropping, again. inflation uh, is, is rising. Fed obviously making some moves, uh, some debate. Obviously, former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers is projecting even higher uh, interest rates, saying that the Fed's actions are, are not enough uh, nor fast enough. Uh, walk us through how the group uh, performed on the street and what was driving investors.
1: Yeah, so, Vago, so just looking at the week, if you look at how the aerospace, to stock, the aerospace and defense stocks performed, the commercial stocks uh, generally did better than, than the defense stocks. Uh, you know, Boeing is kind of the bellwether for commercial. It was up 9%. Um, you know, Honeywell uh, and GE, who both have commercial businesses but are mixed, um, you know, they were up kind of mid-single-digit. Raytheon was flat. The defense names were pretty much all down for the week. Um, and the, the, of all the defense names, the one that was down the most was, was Lockheed Martin. And I think that had a lot to do with the, uh, the surprise announcement that the, uh, um, the DOD may, may in quotes, underlined in bold, may getting fewer F-35s. And I'm certain we'll talk about that in a bit because that doesn't make much sense. Um, when you look at the 10-year, uh, like you mentioned, um, uh, the, the Fed raised, raised interest rates by 25 basis points. I think you know the, the biggest you know, debate on the street right now was, was that enough? The Fed itself indicated that there's going to be more raises, maybe five and maybe you know one raise per meeting for the next five to seven meetings. Uh, and some Fed members are even arguing that they should go up by 50 basis points, not 25. When you look at oil, um, oil prices are down, but they're not down a ton, right? WTI is down 100 to $105. Brent crude is down to about 108 They both peaked uh, re- uh, respectively at 120 and $130. Um, so they're down off the crazy peaks. But if you look at kind of how they traded, they, they didn't go to those peaks for very long. Um, and then I, I would say the other things in the week that were interesting and I think caught investor attention were uh, discussion that Delta could be in the market for uh, it seems like maybe 50 737 Max tens plus maybe 50 options, uh, and then the news that the F-15EX might be in competition uh, in, uh, in in Egypt, uh, and then finally, um, you know, the Textron acquisition of uh, Pipistrel and how they're going to handle that, I, I think is uh, is fascinating. I don't, I don't think it really impacted how the stock traded this week, but it, it does. Um, um, make a little bit of a change in strategy at Textron and how they're thinking about um, e aviation uh, and, and sustainability.
0: Um, and, and at least it's, it's like a real product that has um, a lot of utility as a light airplane and as a trainer uh, where, where it's uh, the product has been doing very well. I mean, it's, it's uh, it's a company that I've been following for some time and, and I'm very impressed that uh, with, with what they're doing and how they're doing it. Let me just ask you a question about how, um, sort of U.S. Uh, defense spending, and I'll, I'll, I'll go uh, to Sash and Richard uh, in a moment, right? I mean, there is a sense, uh, and we discussed this a little bit on on Friday's show, that the Pentagon may be building a budget to 773, even if, or, or 770, even though it looks like Congress is going to be authorizing around 813 billion, right? So, I mean, you know, D- Dr. Dov Zakheim, uh, the former Pentagon comptroller's sense was that this is a little bit of gold watching, Right. Uh, that the administration is making trims and cuts. And then, you know, that the F-35 number, uh, and would like to get Richard's take on this, you know, is, is whether or not foreign orders are being slotted ahead of the, the United States, uh, ultimately. But it was a, a, a story that uh, did, did sort of, you know, worry people uh, when it when it came out. Um, I mean, ultimately, are, are investors focused on the eaches or that there is going to be 813 billion or thereabouts uh, on the top line I mean, because one would think that would sort of dampen sort of mood swings on individual stocks, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's
0: actually, it's
1: pretty complicated. You know, the conversations we've been having with investors, investors seem to be taking a little bit of a, uh, maybe an uncharacteristically longer term view that, you know, defense is now a place that is important uh, and that, you know, the, the threats of cuts to defense are clearly off the table. And now it's a question of how much does defense grow? Uh, and in you know in, in that if you just kind of go back not that long ago that clearly wasn't the case in, in the investor mindset uh, and I, and I think with the F thirty five thing that just surprised everybody because it it really made no sense and you know even when we followed up with Lockheed um, it didn't seem to make a lot of sense to them either I mean everybody was surprised by it so. Um, Like I mentioned, I wouldn't be surprised if those aircraft that that gets changed when it's all said and done. And it just seems like the narrative this year on the defense budget uh, this year, meaning the the new budget for 2023 will be like it was in 2022, you know, the fourth request and then and then Congress in a very bipartisan fashion across both houses uh, adds to it and adds to it probably more this year than they did last year when it's all said and done
0: um sash uh let me uh, go over to you um obviously all eyes uh in europe and in the world or on uh russia's uh, brutal uh attack uh on uh ukraine um we had a whole bunch of other uh, news elements that i'd like to get your comment on from a european perspective and richard as well right i mean kind of trying to get your guys to take a bite on what you thought was interesting and newsworthy this week over the last couple of weeks Sashi, you've been giving us some great analysis and and commentary on what you saw that was interesting in the war kind of take it away on what you thought was most noteworthy over the past week
2: yeah okay um I mean, you know, two, two things initially, and then we should probably touch on, you know, use of a hypersonic weapon. But um, first issue, uh, Rheinmetall, who um, are, are always the last company to announce their twenty twenty one results, announced their twenty twenty one results. They were good. Their guidance twenty twenty two is even better. Uh, they're, you know, they're clearly on a roll uh, in terms of uh, resurgent European defense spending. And remember, because they have a business that specifically makes uh, ammunition, um, everything from small arms really up to their forte, which is uh, tank ammunition and, and artillery ammunition, this is the first area that starts to see orders. And the the turnaround uh, for that is uh, pretty dramatic. So, um, you know, their guidance, which is that they expect revenues this year to be up in the in the region of 15 to 20 percent, uh, margins at all time high, uh, highs is very much driven by the immediate uh, drop-through of the ammunition business. I think there's going to be more to come in 23, 24, and probably 25. What was interesting, though, was when they started talking about the German defence budget. And Rheinmetall is a, a key player in uh, Germany, um, very, very well informed about things. Now, you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, how uh, Chancellor Scholz had said, Germany, German defence budget is going to go up to 2% of GDP from about 1.5% you know, minimum, and there's going to be a uh, 100 billion uh, fund, extra fund for spending on defence. I think as the weeks have gone by, it's become apparent that this is a much more smooth uh, process. So rather than an immediate jump up in defence spending or in the defence budget next year, on top of which is 100 billion to be spent in very, very short short order, Ryan Mattel was saying, the way you have to think about this is the 100 billion extends over multiple years. I suspect that the German Defence Ministry physically cannot spend money um, within a sort of three, four year time horizon of of that order, because um, the capital budget in Germany has historically been of the order of 10 to to 14 billion. Um, If you suddenly tripled it, it's it's an, an enormous attack of indigestion. But what will happen is that every single program that the Germans have ever thought about buying, F-35s for the nuclear role, uh, for example, more Eurofighters for uh, conventional roles, more frigates, more submarines, but most importantly, a, a huge amount more in terms of land systems, all of that is now affordable. But I think what we will what we will see is 100 billion being spent over, you know, at least five years and possibly seven, eight years. Um, and the Core defence budget ratcheting up over that period. Net, the equipment budget still more than doubles, uh, probably for next year. It's a great time to be a German uh, defence manufacturer. But this is not a you know a sort of tripling, quadrupling, quadrupling spending, which I think was what it looked like at, at the very beginning. Um, different subject now. Um, you know the the war in Ukraine. Um, we've been thinking quite a lot about this this week, and I'm, I'd, I'd like to offer one. Uh, thought, which is that, that one of the big disappointments, you know, the epic fails of the war so far has been helicopters. Helicopters in any shape or form. Um, the Russian army is well equipped with helicopters. Uh, they've been at the cutting edge of attack helicopter development for 40, nearly 50 years, ever since the first Hind uh, Mill 24 model uh, came into service uh, in East Germany at the time. Um, but more recently, with the uh, the the Kamov fifty uh, alligator compound rotor, um, and the Mil twenty eight as well, and the Russians have been always very very strong, or at least they have told us they've been very strong on air assaults, so the use of mass helicopter formations uh, to take strategic assets. I think what's been so interesting about the you know the last three weeks has been how how poorly the Russian. Uh, air assault and helicopter forces have been. Russian attack helicopters have really not featured very much at all. They haven't been doing what you would expect attack helicopters to do, which is searching out and destroying uh, Ukrainian uh, armoured formations and dug in armour close to the battlefield. Question, is that stinger uh, that has actually muted that effect? And then in terms of air assault, the one big air assault that we have seen, the attack on the Hostelbel airfield was a disaster. Now, it may be that it was poorly, ex- you know, poorly planned, poorly executed, but actually using helicopters to uh, airlift in very large formation of troops and then supplying them, uh, reinforcing them, um, simply didn't work. Again, question, is this because Ukrainian air defenses were just too strong? But if the question, you know, the answer to either of those questions is yes, Then this suggests that in a heavily air defended environment, the helicopter, whether attack helicopter or assault helicopter, cannot function the way that um, the evangelists would like it to. And I think that should cause a lot of Western nations to sit up and think about, you know, whether actually we spend too much on helicopters for which the utility in a high intensity battlefield is very, very limited indeed. So those are those are my two sort of Big thoughts for uh, for this week, but you know, happy to expand on uh, on on others.
0: Um, in, in, indeed, and look forward to doing so. And I should point out, uh, even though Bell uh, is our uh, sponsor and is competing both in the future armed reconnaissance aircraft competition as well as the future long-range assault aircraft, uh, there is a sense, even when you talk to people in the Pentagon. That the FARA side of the pro- program, the, the replacement for the Kiowa or rather I should say Apaches performing the scout mission, uh, there's a sense that the uh, OSD leadership, the Office of Secretary of Defense leadership and particularly Deputy Defense Secretary Hicks, as well as um, Susanna Bloom at, at CAPE, the cost analysis program uh, evaluation side of the house, are increasingly looking at, at the, the FARA program as being a little bit problematic. Uh, given that you know drones are likely to perform a better role, loitering munitions uh, and what have you, in in that sort of anti anti-armor, anti armor, uh, anti vehicle, anti contact force uh, as well as scouting missions. Uh, Richard, let me uh, bring you into the discussion now. You've been very patient. I mean, what are sort of the things that sort of that you thought were sort of needle moving news items and and what you thought of them, uh, especially, right, the it's sort of surprising that Egypt would be looking at the F-15EX among among other things. But, but walk us through uh, both on uh, F-35, that issue and anything else that's on your mind, including the Delta buy.
3: Oh, boy, it was a... News-rich week, indeed. Uh, let's start with the uh, the 15 prospect for Egypt. You know, for 30 years, they had gone exclusively U.S. Uh, and exclusively F-16s. And uh, it looks like they were going to be an all F-16 force. But then all of a sudden, uh, you had that double hit. Based, sort of the aftermath of the Arab Spring and all the political concerns about arms cutoffs. They decided to dual source in a big way or triple source. They went back to Russia, MiG-29s, and uh, also... Uh, of course, Rafael's now up to 54 of them, uh, and I think there was a concern that maybe the dual source would be France and and, uh, and and Russia with no room for the U.S. If 15s come back, that's certainly good welcome news for the U.S. It's also great news for the F-15 because, of course, uh, that's one of Boeing's most profitable programs. Uh, It's viewed as having another decade all of a sudden because of the renewed U.S. Air Force procurement. But it would be interesting to see another unexpected wave of exports. And on top of that, you know, you've got the explosion of the arms market at the top end of combat aircraft, you know, up until the year 2000. There were only really three export customers for high-end twin-jet fighters, um, Japan, Israel, and Saudi. That was it. And now there's, I think we're up to 10 or a dozen. It's really extraordinary how that top end price point market has exploded. This would be further evidence of that. So big news there. Uh, You know, Delta, it's very interesting on the 737 MAX 10. Obviously, they're going to get a really good deal. The MAX 10 is is a really great aircraft as long as you're not doing it for the kind of longer range route fragmentation operations that the 321neo LR and XLR do. And you could easily see a Boeing strategy, probably a smart one to kind of do their best to split that middle market and basically say, look, we understand why the 321 Neo is doing really well for 4,000 nautical miles or above or 3,500 or above, but we're going to give you better numbers for shorter range routes. And a lot of Delta aircraft or a lot of Delta routes are shorter range, higher density, uh, single aisle. So the Max 10 will be great for that. I would, you know, in... The absence of anything new uh, on Boeing product development, which of course we've lamented for years now, um, this would be a smart strategy, and it would at least get them to a better than one-third share of the single aisle market where they're certainly heading uh, at best. So that's that's welcome news, I think, for Boeing. Um, I'm reluctant to uh, follow uh, Sash with any kind of lessons learned. It looks for all the world that you've got a monumental mix of terrible doctrine, poor execution, god-awful logistics, and most of all, demotivated untrained troops. I'm not so sure we should be learning larger lessons about equipment and technology. One day we will, but, and and, you know, certainly there's a lot to be said about precision guided munitions leveling the playing field, but that's been the case since uh, the 70s and 80s, really. I'm, I'm not sure we should read that much into it yet. It'll be interesting, and I understand his interest in this. It's, it's certainly a fascinating topic. I just think it's a bit premature. Uh, and then lastly, You know all of these guys are all of the people, aviation, magnets, whoever. They're collections of intellectual property. They always have, to, you know, boom, whoever else. Anyone that might be lumped under the heading of New arrow, The objective has been to collect IP and to attract investment. None of these guys are going to be OEMs on their own. And this is further evidence. What I like about PIPISTRO and I like about the TechStrong move is that, as you said before, Vago, there really is a market here. It's not some sort of urban air mobility because we're all going to have a jetpack or some such nonsense. There is a market for planes in this class. This is not disruptive. This is simply clever use of technology to help that market. And, And I like that.
0: Uh, and I should point out, right? That uh, um, you know, as much as I love Cessna airplanes, have time in Cessna airplanes. The reality is, a lot of these designs are the same designs. They've been manufacturing for a very long period of time as opposed to this, which which does show uh, a dramatic change, changes the operating economics of it, uh, improves reliability uh, in a lot of cases, in part because, you know, electric, once you uh, you know what I mean, it's it's not as many worrying and moving parts in there. There are not as many valves to go go wrong um, and and then have, you know, somebody who did a bad job servicing your engine. And the next thing you know, um, you're, you're putting it in the trees or at the end of the runway. Let me just uh, go very quickly. Um, to, um, and I, I should put a disclaimer here, right? Um, Michael Kaufman, Sam Bendett, Jeff Edmonds, and the great team at the Center for Naval Analysis uh, that are doing such a terrific job analyzing this war rightfully always point out, we don't have a clear picture, public picture of what's actually happening on the battlefield. Uh, it is going through a variety of different lenses um, and unless you have, you're privy to the classified picture on that battlefield, it, 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 you're, you're not getting as clear of a, of a, of a picture, right? I mean, the Ukrainians really are controlling the information space in the West uh, on this, and it suggests maybe a picture that, that may not be as successful as what's being reflected on the battlefield, for example. So I just put that out there in, in, in your point, the um, Richard. Uh, very quickly on F-35, how do you perceive what's going on with, with the program? I mean, is this sort of capricious cut? Is it sliding uh, foreign allies and partners more to the front of the line as we try to accelerate NGAD and, and other programs? I mean, how do you, how do you or, or is this just, you know, pure political game? I know I can cut F-35 because Congress will give me the money, best yeah, of all possible. I, world.
3: This is a fascinating topic. Thanks for giving me a crack at that. You know, it. the number is 156. They announced that in September, I believe, number is 156 for years to come. There was no leadership or any kind of messaging about what it would take to budget beyond that. The skyline charts were the 175, 185 level. Something had to give. Now, is this a concerted effort to give Germany, Finland, and other key allies a quicker shot at getting these? jets? quite possibly. But the idea that their share price would react to this I don't get that because the answer is 156. It's limited by industrial realities and policy. Uh, Again, hopefully that will change. They'll provide leadership. Uh, What could get it closer to 200 or say? But for the next three or four years, at least it's 156. So it doesn't really matter what the Air Force and and, and Navy and and Marines budget for. Obviously, they like more. They're almost certainly going to get more because this thing is plus update by Congress. It's going to be hugely politically popular. Um, but the number is 156. They've made that clear.
0: Ron, I, I want to go, go, go to you, but first want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris uh, sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. Uh, Ron, I, I want to go to a Chinese contagion issue in, in a moment, but very quickly ask you, d- does the news on hypersonic weapons and the littoral combat ship retirements move any needles or folks kind of worried at all about that? Obviously, the Navy is, uh, appears to be making the case Uh, Right. I mean, they try to get rid of a nuclear powered carrier every year. That always gets vetoed. So they basically want to make up the difference that $700 million a year. They're claiming these LCSs cost too much to operate at $70 million each. I retire 10 of them. I save the equivalent of retiring a carrier, which is $700 million in operating cost. Everybody's pretty much looking at this and saying that's absolutely ridiculous. We spent $5 billion to build these ships. And you say you need ships. Let's use the darn ships. Any sense on what the hypersonic cut? And the LCS cut mean for investors or, or whether they're just not paying that much attention to it?
1: Yeah, on LCS, I don't think investors are paying much attention to it, right? I mean, it's it just wasn't that big a program. And and to the companies that it was big to, they aren't really, you know, um, Marinette Marine and Austal are companies that U.S. defense investors are very focused on. Um, so I think that was just sort of a wash. Uh, On the hypersonic one, I mean, hypersonics has been an area where there's been investor interest. So, you know, if there's a cutback there, um, that that might get some headlines, and uh, get some investors' um, thoughts going. However, you know, that coming on the heels of Russia using hypersonics for the first time ever in in battle, again, that kind of doesn't make sense either. So we'll see how it all comes out. I would imagine I'll get some questions this week on, on the hypersonic point.
0: Uh, let me go to the China contagion, right? Our, our European allies and partners uh, were doing their best to avoid getting caught in a China-U.S. you know, China, US confrontation. And now, alas, they find themselves in the middle of that very confrontation because of Russia and the alliance that Russia and, and, and China have uh, struck. Um, President Biden and Xi Jinping spent two hours on the phone. There were seven hours between Jake Sullivan and his Chinese counterpart in Rome earlier in the week. It looks like China is going to be very much impacted if it decides to help uh, Russia and it's making it clear it will help Russia. And then actually the United States is at fault in this conflict, right? That it was NATO's fault, that NATO didn't do enough to reassure Russia, even though the alliance has done a terrific job at not putting forces on the Russian border and certainly not invading uh, one of its, its its neighbors. Any clearer sense this week on what this China contagion means? Because I sort of see this as two authoritarian nations who got really rich because of Pax Americana, really strong, but really hate Pax Americana, are kind of turning against it. And at some point, you have to be realistic and acknowledge, as much as I'd like to separate these two guys, as much as I cobbled them to keep them separate, right, I deliberately did not punish each it to sort of, you know, they'll get nicer as they get wealthier. They don't really mean to be mean. And now we're concluding, yeah, they're in cahoots and they've got a plan, uh, and we have to confront them. Any any sense on a market perspective where this is going?
1: Yeah, again, I mean, I think it just feeds into the defense narrative. Um, there hasn't been a lot of conversation, in particular, about you know the, the China Russia nexus, but um, it, it'll percolate up in the in the investor in the investor community, and it just kind of it is further support for this you know, changing view on defense. That defense is a space where you, you need some exposure, where, you know, the world has on a fundamental level changed. Uh, and, and I think that that's probably the, you know, probably the, the biggest takeaway for the investor community that that you know, if you just go back you know, three weeks ago, everything changed. Uh, and, and you're seeing that, I think, in the multiples for defense. You're going to see that in the support for defense budgets globally. I mean, you have for sure seeing it in the NATO community. Um, but it's just one more piece of that same puzzle.
0: Uh, Sash, you know, we were talking a little bit about this, about whether or not we're actually in World War III, Uh, just like World War I looked different from World War II. World War III might include flashpoint hotspots like Ukraine, Taiwan, a couple of other places, but largely becomes an economic confrontation uh, that has uh, diplomatic cyber space, uh, certainly informational elements uh, of that. Uh, From from your perspective, are we fully, does anybody fully appreciate the, the nature and the scope of this because a lot of wealth was created by oligarchs, right? A lot of London's wealth is predicated on it having been a haven. Economists did a great story on that this week uh, for a um, whole bunch of maybe not as clean money as we would like to, it to have been. And that's percolated certainly to US and other markets. Do, do folks fully appreciate the magnitude of not just cutting the Russians off and keeping them cut off, but then cutting the Chinese off and keeping them cut off?
2: I mean, no, of course they do not because that's <laughs> that's an um, that, that is such an uncomfortable conclusion that the vast majority of people will fight hard to avoid coming to it. Uh, it's you know it's it's far too uh, difficult for people. I mean, you know, having having a war in uh, in Russia is bad enough. The idea that actually the contagion might take us to China, which is most European nations' uh, largest um, export uh you know country that's linked, that you know that's that's far too difficult i think for people at this stage so i think that will percolate through i think the uh messaging that um the you know president biden and his administration are are uh, making to the chinese is incredibly important uh in in this regard um i think the russians the fact that the russians have, have you know reportedly started asking the chinese for for weaponry, which is pretty astonishing. Let's face it, you know, the Russians have been suppliers of weaponry to China for pretty much the whole of the period since 1949, but the fact that they've done that, that sort of highlights for Europeans who would rather not think about this, how difficult this nexus is. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I think that's going, to be the, uh, that's going to be the thing to watch uh, is, you know, where the Chinese weaponry does end up in the Ukraine. And if it does, that will make it much harder for uh, Europeans to, uh, to deny this.
0: Richard, your, your sense, right? I mean, you've been uh, talking and thinking about this decoupling uh, for a long time, and it would just seem to me to be accelerating all forms of decoupling from autocratic regimes that have made it abundantly clear. They're, you know what I mean? They've made their hatred toward the United States and the West and democracies very clear. And it seems like it's just sort of dawning on us hey, wait a minute, these guys don't like us and they're just trying to profit off of us. I mean, are, are we there? And what does it mean? And how do we need to approach this ultimately? Because you can't have both, right? You're not going to keep trading with people who are, who are making common cause in crushing sovereign states through military force.
3: It's a fascinating moment because I think this uh, forces the other side to decide whether they want to decouple or not. When you look at it on the face of it, just through aerospace and defense, but in so many other ways, China and Russia are terrible partners. You know, declining partner, ri- declining power, rising power, declining aerospace player, rising aerospace player. You know, one one side wants money for stuff, and the other side wants an equal partnership. It's hard to see how they would get together and decouple from the west but that was that's exactly what you need them they would need to do in order to successfully decouple from the west and i think the strategy now is to make china choose and we'll see if they make the right choice or the wrong choice but this is the moment
0: i mean i i think there's going to be a massive decoupling and i think there's going to be a lot of loss of wealth uh, but I also believe that there will be opportunity. But I think it, it's going, you know, th- this moment was coming. It's, it's a lot cheaper to lay down guidelines and rules now uh, and try to avoid something kinetic and bigger in the future. I mean, I think we should have put troops in Ukraine. I've said that. I, I think we have to consider putting troops in Taiwan if we're going to avoid confrontation. So this whole notion of somehow we can deter and that integrated deterrence can exist without like boots on the ground somewhere or hard military capabilities is, is just not going to work. Sanctions alone did not deter Vladimir Putin from going into Ukraine, just like sanctions alone will not get him out of Ukraine. Uh, ultimately, he's on a punitive campaign at this point. Um, I just want to trans- uh, move to the pandemic and talk a little bit about that. Um, we have been doing on this program over the next two years uh, or the last two years since this long global nightmare began um, a couple of times when we thought we were coming out of it, right? Mid 2020, we thought we were coming out of it. There was another wave. Uh, we thought we were coming out of it again. There was another wave, uh, you know, vaccinations, we would be coming out of it. And then there was another wave on uh, Omicron was the last one It's lifted and everybody's saying, thank God we're past it and now it looks like we might be going into another wave i want to kind of go around the horn on how people need to be thinking about this and what it means when only 65% of our population is fully vaccinated i mean that's the reality in the united states ron
1: yeah so you know the, you know, the way we think about it is each each new wave is, so far has been less virulent than the one before it and our hope is that that trend continues although you know admittedly i'm not a am not a virologist or an epidemiologist so you know that just could be empty hope um, that's how we're modeling things, uh, as we've been having the same forecast now for pretty much this whole two year period, getting back to 2019 traffic on an annual basis in 2024 and getting to 2019 air traffic level sometime in 2023. Um, I mean, that would prove optimistic if we were to go through another wave like an Omicron that, um, did, did have some meaningful impact. Um, so, you know, fingers crossed, um, I, I remain optimistic, but, um, admittedly, I mean there's a bit of uh, throwing the dice on that one. Sash?
2: Countries that have higher levels of vaccination are dropping uh restrictions on travel very, very fast indeed. Example, this week, uh you want to fly to Italy from the UK or vice versa, no restrictions whatsoever. You don't even have to fill in a passenger locator form uh anymore. So high levels of vaccination uh are working in terms of liberalizing international air travel. I think we're going to get a two-tier international uh, air travel uh, environment: those who are heavily vaccinated and those who are not. Eighty percent plus, and generally, the you know the the uh, the barriers come down quite fast, um, down at sixty-five percent. I think there will be constraints on international travel for some time. I think combine that and you know the likelihood that we're we're in a fifth wave um, with. The constraints on international travel in Europe, as a result of the Ukraine conflict, I don't think we're going to get to back to 2019 levels of international long haul traffic, which I realise is a, uh, you know, is is a subset, but I can't see us getting back to it. Certainly in the first half of the decade, uh, and I think that what this means is that the old balance of the civil aerospace business, which was basically about half of the value of civil aerospace, or certainly 40% plus, 40, 45% was in long haul. Um, Big aircraft, big engines, very, very expensive overhauls, a lot of MRO, and then uh, the the remainder was in uh, short haul. I I think that's gone certainly uh, any foreseeable time I can forecast. Uh, Narrow bodies are where the market is frankly, both Boeing and Airbus' wide-body portfolios are of sort of academic interest, analytic interest, but they're not going to be what drives these companies' uh, businesses, uh, their profitability, and hence their share prices, anytime in the next five years.
0: Right. Richard, your sense on where it is, and I have one final uh, Ukraine question to put to uh, each of you in the last lightning round. Go ahead, Richard.
3: I agree completely. Uh, it looks promising, but we don't know, and Wide body international nowhere, uh, single aisles, very strong market. You know, I I think if nothing else, the sudden surge of oil prices has given everyone a, a quick reminder of what it's like to fly domestic routes and commodity routes when you're up against a new generation single aisle with an old generation one, because it's a double-digit fuel burn difference, which means. The other competitor, your competitor, can both outprice and outprofit you, and you might as well go into a different line of work. So I think, uh, if anything, the market for single oils has gotten more robust in the past couple of weeks, not just because the market has recovered in these domestic uh, routes faster, but also because of the price of oil giving everyone a sudden taste of what it's like when you don't have the latest and best and you absolutely need to.
0: And, and you think passenger trends are not going to be changed even if we have another bad wave?
3: We have all the data for Delta and Omicron and Deltacron or whatever. There's inevitably a little bit of a small fishhook, but the trajectory is the same. We're still heading back by 2024. Now it's going to be faster on single aisles, that is to say on, on, on domestic and, and regional routes, and it's going to be slower on international Um, that bifurcation isn't going to change and it's probably not going to repair itself for a very long time, but nevertheless, the, the trend has been remarkably consistent given what's going on.
0: Last question on, uh, Ukraine. Um, there is a concern that the administration, uh, the U.S. administration, is beginning to self-deter itself. Uh, that it is so eager to avoid uh, confrontation with Russia, uh, we postponed a, you know, a missile test. We uh, rejected Poland's offer for MiG-29s. Uh, we uh, look like we're limiting the kinds of systems uh, we donate and I uh, to the Ukrainians, uh, and I agree that anti-armor missiles and anti-air missiles are important. We need higher altitude air defense missiles. I'm surprised those aren't going over from Eastern European countries and that we are not extending, for example, our air and missile defense umbrella to them as quickly. Uh, and I also think we should be sending more drones and more loitering munitions. We sent switchblades, but we are only sending 100 switchblades, uh, in part because our own inventories are limited. Are we doing enough to help Ukraine or are we doing just enough to be able to claim that we did something without really doing enough and just really quickly uh, around the horn and whether that sends a bad message, for example, to China, which I think is the case. But anyway, Sash and then Richard and and Ron, I'm going to uh, exempt you uh, from, from that question because I think it transgresses what uh, you uh, in your role are, are able to do and able to say. But go ahead, Sash and Richard, sort of uh, give us your sense.
2: Um, look, we're never doing enough, but I think that we—and I'm using the, you know—I think what somebody called the royal we, um, the West, the US, and Europe have done an enormous amount to change the entire shape of this conflict and the nature of the uh, the as yet undeclared but very apparent conflict with China. Uh, China has had to reconsider the um, the risks that they would incur in invading Taiwan both in terms of just the straightforward military risks but also the political risks because the, the West um, gathered rounds to support Ukraine so incredibly strongly and incredibly quickly. I think that had uh, the US, had Europe not been uh, reinforcing uh, Ukraine with uh, with weapons and with very, very high-end trading and doing it for the last three, four years or so, this this war would already be over and we would be in an incredibly uncomfortable position, I think we've stopped that from happening. Have we done enough to to enable Ukraine to win? No, nowhere near. I think that the risk, though of Russian of Russian escalation, and I see their use of a hypersonic missile this week, militarily meh, uh, but in terms of the signal that sends, which is this is another rung up the ladder of escalation. Um, That's something that we have to be very, very aware of, because Russian escalation does not stop before the use of nuclear weapons. Um, So I think what we have to do is, I think we have, you know, deterrence has failed. Uh, We, the West, have got to make the cost of the Ukraine war incredibly high, and I think we're doing that. And then the, uh, you know, the next stage is to to, uh, help with whatever negotiations Ukraine wants to do. Um, Are we going to be able to reinforce Ukraine with uh, you know, with um, boots on the ground. No, I just don't think that's a um, a possibility,
0: R- Richard.
3: Yeah, I think I'm somewhere between you, um, Sash, and, and and you, Vago. Uh, you know, on, on one level, boy, we've given them a bloody nose with all this help from the West. I mean, Russia looks like a fake superpower with a truly third-rate military, uh, and Vladimir Putin looks like something of a mental patient at this point. Um, given those circumstances, you got to allow them a way out. You know, I mean, it's less about deterrence, although that's an element of it also about, you know, how do we let them get out of it without making it look like they're caving into enormous amounts of Western pressure. Having said that, yeah, I'm surprised that we haven't upped the game a little bit, at least with S-300 um, surface air missiles, maybe not mig 29s, but maybe. I, I suspect that the answer just depends uh, upon intelligence that we don't have access to, everything from Putin's mental state to uh, you know any signals the Russians might have sent uh, already. But uh, in, in general, I guess I'm I'm just between Sasha's viewpoint your and yours.
0: Well, uh, thanks very much, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. I know that this week in particular was a challenge because uh, three of you are in <laughs> the very distant uh, points uh, or either en route or, or uh, uh, having pulled over on the side of the road. So uh, really appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Uh, have a great we- uh, weekend, great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Great to be here, It Wouldn't be a weekend without it. Thanks. Yeah, always a pleasure, Margot. Thank you so much.
3: Thanks as always for doing this, Margot. Great to be on.